The following interview originally aired on KPOV 88.9 on the Tuesday Point. You can listen to The Point on KPOV each weekday at 9 a.m. on 88.9 FM in Central Oregon and kpov.org. We do now have with us on the phone uh, Joe Lewis. Joe, you there? Yes, I'm here. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and so uh, Joe uh, was at Kent State uh, in the, the about as much of the middle and thick of it as a person could possibly be on May 4th, 1970, when the Ohio National Guard shot, uh, fired on college students at Kent State University, uh, killing four, wounding many others. Um, and now Joe, uh, today you, you heard in our introduction, but Joe eventually moved to Scappoose, not ter- too terribly long after that, Scappoose, Oregon. Worked there uh, for many years in their uh, water department and has retired. Uh, Joe has also been a, a very strong social justice advocate for many years and currently uh, serves on the board of directors of the Rural Organizing Project. And I also serve on that board, so just fair, fair disclosure there. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Bruce, for having me on and, uh, and for your leadership and work with the ROP and otherwise, too. All right, so um, I guess we, if we want to just kind of jump in, and we have plenty of time today. I just want to add, last year we tried to do this. We didn't have enough time. And, uh, but um, So, Joe, can you uh, kind of set the scene for, uh, for, for what happened on May, 1st, 19, May 4th, 1970? Um, well, sure. I'll, I'll try. I'll try to set a complete scene if I can. Uh, people who uh, are old enough will remember the war in Vietnam was being broadcast into our homes on the nightly news, and it was it was horribly tragic. And, and we saw the suffering both of of American GIs, uh, but also the the people in Southeast Asia whose villages were being burned and, and, uh, and mass killings happening and and it was just a horrible war which many people in the United States including myself and around the world uh, uh, found to be unnecessary and, and incomprehensible in, in its brutality and so I joined with others in protesting the, the war and uh we had attended a couple of marches in the fall of 1969. I was a freshman on the campus of Kent State then, 18 years old. <clears throat> and, and and so things had slowed down during the winter, but in the spring, um, President Nixon announced that he had expanded the war into Cambodia by attacking some supply lines there. And as a peace advocate, myself and many others, saw this as an expansion of the war into another country, and there were protests all across uh, all across America, including at Kent State, where uh, some activists buried the Constitution because they said that Nixon had destroyed the, the Constitution and everything it stood for. And they uh, also planned to have another rally on the following Monday. Um, that would be on Friday. And so... Uh, on Friday in, in downtown Kent, there was some, some disruptive activity uh, down on the strip where all the bars were. And, and it was quite a, a, a nice spring evening. A lot of people were out. Uh, Kent is a very popular place uh, in northeastern Ohio for people, young people to congregate because there were uh, a few bars and, and live music happening all the time. And 
so was, and people from northeastern Ohio would come there. And, and that Friday night, there was some disruption in the streets, and it's a little bit cloudy about who actually started it. There are rumors that it was a, this motorcycle group, or it was actually political in nature. And, and I wasn't there, so I'm not quite sure what the nature of the disruption was. But at some point, someone uh, lit a 55-gallon drum on fire, and I think it was in the street. And they were talking about having a street party and, and shutting down the street. And uh, the police uh, in Kent, uh, I believe, overreacted, and the mayor overreacted. But there had been a town and gown division in Kent, like in some other college towns, where the college uh, students were considered to be uh, radical. And, and, of course, it was a small percentage of uh, uh, students who were even politically engaged. But the townspeople were more conservative, and, and uh, especially in uh, that part of Ohio. Um, and so there was a friction going on there. And when this disruption happened downtown Kent on Friday, uh, the mayor, foolishly, I, in my estimation, chose to close the bars. And so there was like 28 bars in five blocks in, in Kent. And a lot of them, like I said, had entertainment, live music that was fabulous and really fun. Um, and so suddenly at about 11 o'clock, Mayor Satram of Kent closed all the bars, flooding the streets with people. And to me, this is one of a series of horrible decisions that could have been and should have been avoided. Uh, that that made things worse that weekend in Kent. Um, and so there were people flooding the streets, uh, upset. Some of them had been drinking, you know, and, and there were a few windows broken in downtown Kent as, as people uh, were frustrated and angry. And, and the political connections, like I said, since I wasn't there, I'm unclear about who did what, you know, really or why. But it was reported that there was a, a riot in downtown Kent. And I'm not sure how how loosely that term was applied, but there were some broken windows in the bank building and the and the military recruiting office and so forth. And the next day, uh, students from the campus came and helped sweep up the mess and clean up somewhat. Um, but the uh, ruckus that night got the attention of the mayor and and the governor of Ohio, who at the time was a man named James Rhodes despicable person. He called out the National Guard more than any governor in the country at that point. He was a law and order guy and and a strong supporter of business, which, I mean, that's that's important for our economy, but he emphasized business over over, over other issues, in my view. And he, uh, he capitalized on this incident because he was uh, in that spring running in the uh, Republican primary for U.S. Senate against uh, an established Ohio politician named Bob Taft. And so to appeal to his law and order base, he was talking about how disruptive students on campuses were. And um, so Saturday on Kent campus, there was a rumor that the ROTC building, the Reserve, Reserve Officers Training Corps building, was going to be targeted by uh, anti-war groups, and and sure enough, I, I witnessed this from the from the out from the uh, uh, entryway to my dormitory, which was right across the Commons, which is a large grassy kind of a soccer field area between my dorm, Johnson Hall, and the ROTC building. 
And I watched a group of students convened, and they were students, I saw a group of people convened, and attempt to ignite the building using several different methods, which be unsuccessful. Uh, and then I followed along behind this group of students as they went around campus and they get more so for their effort uh, to protest the militarism on campus. And we went around to the front of the campus. The campus is Kent State. Uh, I don't know how many acres, but I'll uh, say pretty large. It would take you uh, a good hour to walk around, uh, more than that, to walk around the whole thing, yeah. And so we got around to the front campus and... Uh, in the meantime, the National Guard had apparently been called, and they arrived in Kent from Ravenna, the the, the uh, armory to the east of town. And just as I was getting around the front campus, so I hightailed it back to my dormitory, which, as I said, was very close to the ROTC building. And when I got back there, the building, and I think suspiciously, was fully involved in flames. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how that happened, but to me, it's always been suspicious about who who actually ignited the building successfully because the attempts by the group earlier had appeared to be unsuccessful. Um, and so the next day, Sunday, uh, the National Guard was then on the campus, 900 guardsmen, bivouacked on the college campus. And the next day, Sunday, uh, Governor and candidate Rhodes came to the Kent Fire Hall where he proceeded to lambaste this, what he called the most organized group of, uh, he acted like they were, that they were communist infiltrators, and that they were moving from campus to campus, causing disruption. And he said he wasn't going to treat the symptoms, he was going to eliminate the cause, whatever it took, even if it took an armed guard in every classroom, and he banged his fist on the table, calling these uh, agitators uh, worse than the night riders and the brown shirts and, and the vigilantes, the worst element we harbor in American society is what he said. And he just pounded his fist on the table as he said this, which to me inflamed everyone in Ohio, but especially the National Guardsmen who were there on campus and who had been uh, called out earlier for a trucker strike. So they had, some of them been on duty for a while. And I believe his remarks uh, inflamed the, the, the everyone who was listening who didn't really know what had happened on the campus. And um, that night, there was a curfew, and uh, some students chose to violate the curfew in an effort to uh, start a dialogue with the university president and the mayor of the city. And they were promised that they would have a chance to speak with them. Um, they sat down in the street and were singing songs, you know, like the like protests were in those days. And at the curfew time, precisely at, at that time, the National Guard had surrounded them and began lobbing tear gas with them and hurting them in front of them with fixed bayonets back onto the campus. So friends of mine, I wasn't there, but friends of mine who were recounted this story to me, and they were very, very upset, uh, crying. They lied to us, you know. They people were uh, struck, and several people that night were bayoneted. Meanwhile, there were three helicopters overhead, hovering with searchlights and tear gas being deployed on the campus as uh, squads of National Guardsmen herded students into dormitories at bayonet point. 
kind of on the on the quick run, so that students were running for their lives. And my dorm counselor Lou was encouraging people to come in the dorm, the door of our dorm, because you could go in one end and come out the other and go to wherever you wherever you lived. And he talked to me that night about how vicious uh, one of the guardsmen had pursued a student running in the doorway that he got his bayonet stuck in the door as Lou slammed the door shut behind this fleeing student. And so it was a very disruptive and upsetting and a, and a terrifying night with helicopters chugging overhead with spotlights, like I said. And, uh, so on Monday, there was the previously scheduled rally when now the focus I, had, I felt had shifted to... Um, uh, supporting an effort to have the guardsmen removed from our campus. And I determined that I would lend my presence to that effort. Um, although I didn't, you know, I didn't have much uh, else to contribute except my support. And talked with the my dorm counselor that night about, about whether the guardsmen would have weapons that were loaded with live ammunition and we concluded that, of course, they wouldn't. There'd be no need for live wet, live ammunition on a college campus where there's no threat of violence and, and none, you know, although the building had burned, no threat of personal violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the next day, I attended a couple of classes in the morning because it was classes were scheduled as usual, even though there were 900 guardsmen on campus and they were forbidding gathering of four or more students. So... In spite of that, I went to campus, went to class, and then at noontime joined the assembled crowd to protest the National Guard's presence. And they began to uh, try to break up the crowd of students, hundreds active and and, and maybe maybe a thousand watching. And uh, they told students to return to their dormitories. This is an illegal assembly. They made the announcement on the, with the bullhorn several times. And students, you know, just continued to catcall and chant anti-war slogans. And so the National Guard uh, had about uh, half a dozen men uh, launch tear gas canisters across the field into the group of students. And some of the students picked them up with uh, rags and threw them back. Uh, and, and it was a it was a very macabre kind of give and take there, uh, and it didn't at that point really feel threatening. It felt more like I always felt like it was more like a street theater, where mm-hmm. I, I felt I had come to I had come to a demonstration to protest, but unbeknownst to us, I think the National Guard thought they were going to war, uh, and they were. Speaking of militarization of police, this wasn't that. This was the military, right? And so they didn't have they didn't have riot shields. I believe strongly they did not have crowd control training. I mean, they had tear gas, fixed bayonets, and thirty caliber thirty caliber rifles. So they were poorly prepared for what their assignment was. And when the tear gas didn't disperse the crowd, they they moved out in force. And uh, about uh, 80 guardsmen marched with fixed bayonets towards the crowd of students, including myself. And so I quickly retreated out of the way between a couple of buildings, and, and they walked towards where I had been and passed. 
they crested the hill and then they went down the other side of the hill into this practice football field where ironically uh they were surrounded by a chain link fence on two sides and, and they really couldn't go any further and the group of students including myself after they passed through our area kind of regrouped on their hill kind of looking at them in the practice football field where they made the ridiculous announcement that students of Kent State we have you surrounded and the the position they were in was, was really ludicrous because they had like I said a chain link fence on two sides of them and then a road across which there were hundreds of students observing them uh, from the hill above and at this point, uh, and I'd like to point out that this happened in front of Taylor Hall, which was the School of Journalism as well as Architecture. And so as a result, there were dozens of college uh, journalist uh, students there, and there's hundreds of photos. So although this is before the time of cell phone videos or body cameras, uh, we did have hundreds of still photos, which really tell the story. Uh, so... Okay. When listeners hear my, my tale, you, you don't have to believe what I say, but if you examine the photographic evidence from that day, you'll, you'll confirm uh, most of the things that I'm saying are, are evident in those photos. Um, and so they, at that point on a practice football field, the guardsmen were getting a lot of grief and flack from the Prentiss Hall parking lot, which is to the extreme left from where I was standing. And so a, a group of them, a dozen or so, knelt down and actually aimed their rifles at that vocal crowd at the end of the practice football field near Prentice Hall, including a student who had a black flag. And it was, it was my blood brother, Alan Canfora, who a week ago had attended the funeral for one of his Barberton, Ohio neighbors who had been killed in, in Vietnam. And so he was grieving his loss as well as joining the protest to to hope that the National Guard would leave our campus. And uh, Alan was holding the black flag, and of course they didn't know the story, uh, but they were aiming their guns right right at him. And, uh, and there were, like I said, vocal protesters behind him too who were, who were yelling things and chanting things at the guardsmen. There were a few stones thrown, mostly gravel, and not any guardsmen were seriously injured at that day from that. Um, but after a while, the guardsmen, uh, there seemed to be a little huddle, a meeting on the practice football field. And the guardsmen started to retrace their steps back up the hill that they had descended to get to the practice football field. And we all thought it was over. They were, they were you know, they had done what they were meant to do, and they were leaving and going back. So they started to retrace their steps, and when they did, uh, they were walking directly in my direction. So I quickly moved to my left out of their path, and they proceeded to walk by in front of me, and, and by these coincidences, they were passing very close to me. And I could see that they were glancing furtively over their right shoulders way back to that practice the football field, the Prentice Hall parking lot area, where the most vocal students had been, and I suspected that they were looking at uh, particular people there. And when they got to the top of the hill in front of me, um, they suddenly, and I noticed the first three riflemen, turned suddenly in unison, aimed, and started shooting. And 
without a warning, without anything. Uh, when they turned and aimed, I instinctively and naively, and uh, like I said, I was 18 and frustrated and, and upset. I, I gave them the finger when they aimed their guns at me, and I was subsequently shot in the first couple seconds and fell to the ground. Uh, the firing continued and lasted for 13 seconds. Uh, they estimate, although they actually have deduced that there were 67 shots fired, uh, killing four and wounding nine. Um, the guardsmen subsequent to the event got together and claimed that they were fired because they were afraid for their lives. <clears throat> Which, if you hear law enforcement say that, you you better be afraid for yours because they're making an excuse for firing the weapons. And uh, the people who who they were most afraid for their lives, the four people who were killed, were uh, Jeff Miller, who was killed at 270 feet. Um, Allison Krauss, who was killed at 340 feet, and Bill Schroeder and Sandy Scheuer, who were killed at 390 feet from the guardsmen. Mm. So to me, the the fact that they claim they were afraid for their lives is preposterous because they had fixed bayonets, helmets, tear gas, and loaded 30 caliber weapons. Yeah. Um, so, Joe, how, so, how, I'm sorry, how far, about how far were you from them? And were you the? Were and you I the, was. I was. I was seventy feet. I was uh, closest to them of the people who were shot. Okay. And I, I don't say that with any pride. I'm, I'm actually very sorry about that. No, I know. I understand. I just trying to paint a picture of even the closest person. You know, was seventy feet away. Uh, so this, the idea of being yeah, afraid for them. I was yeah. actually. They were, yeah, there were people who were closer to me who were on the, uh, on the balcony of Taylor Hall. Uh, who were much closer to the guardsmen than I was, but you know they they didn't pose any threat. I mean, none of us posed any threat. We didn't right. have we didn't have you know. So, uh, and so this you know changed changed my life and changed how I think about things. I never trusted the government or the media ever since. Uh, I always try to get to the real truth, which is sometimes buried, just like the truth about Kent State has been and. And the uh, issue continues to be pertinent and relevant these days because it's all about accountability of law enforcement. And as we saw in the uprising uh, over George Floyd this last summer, that's still an area that we need to uh, call to attention in our country because enforcement uh, has been protected from accountability in so many ways over the years that this is something that's been uh, our attention has been drawn to, and that and that needs work. In fact, we uh, at Kent State uh, there were, um, like I said, nine wounded and four killed, and there was a local grand jury, the Portage County Grand Jury, convened that fall, and they came back with 25 indictments, 24 students and one professor were indicted, uh, no guardsmen were indicted and the state of Ohio failed to charge Gardner with any crime. Um, so the indictments were quashed because of lack of evidence. I was also indicted after being shot twice. I was indicted for uh, participating in a riot. Um, and those charges were all dropped for insufficient evidence. And uh, our our legal team, especially um, Arthur Krause, who is the father of Allison, and uh, Reverend John Adams from the United Methodist Church Board of Church and Society, 
and the ACLU and, and others supported an effort for a, a federal grand jury. Um, and so there was a federal grand jury and eight guardsmen, the shooters who we think were most culpable in taking people's lives and, and shooting people, were indicted by the federal grand jury. Uh, but this meant that the Justice Department were our attorneys. And I, and I really believe, you know, at this time, if you look back at history and references back that direction from now, you'll see references to a project called COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program of the FBI, who infiltrated dissident groups, including the Civil Rights Movement, the American Indian Movement, the Black Panthers, and what they called the New Left, which was the Peace Movement. And so it's very suspicious to me that the government uh, failed to defend us, failed to prosecute these eight guardsmen, and, and the judge summarily dismissed the case for uh, the fact that the lawyers hadn't presented, the Justice Department lawyers had not presented a sufficient case to cause them to be prosecuted. Mm. So, I, you know, you, you, you talked about parallels, and I heard when you were, especially when you were describing the Ohio governor's uh, quote, speeches, uh, pounding on the table and talking about these were all outside, I don't remember the word, but outside interlopers. They were the worst people in society. They had to be banished. And it just kind of got chills because those are the exact same kinds of things that were being said about the people protesting uh, black people killed by police over the summer. Remember that? I mean, the, you know, the, the oh, protests yeah. were, it wasn't, it wasn't good you know, Americans that were causing all the problems. It was these, these outside agitators, these leftists, these radical. You know, um, and it's just yeah, Antifa, right? Which they just made up. Um, I mean, there are there are tiny little ragtag Antifa groups around, but um, so I mean, does that does that ring true with you looking back? Because uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just I, it's just kind of uncanny to me. Yeah, well, actually, you know, it's just while in in those days in the 60s they were talking about the they weren't talking about legitimate americans um, protesting the war they were talking about communist infiltrators and outside agitators as if they didn't belong in our society and and we were we were students and and workers and and people with consciences who were you know tax paying and voting americans and and we were legitimately protesting it wasn't anything from outside it was you know um it was an uprising against the war like the uprising against police violence and the killing of george floyd this summer and all the other killings that happened and it's it's happened for long enough that we need to draw attention to those to those issues and solve them if we can at least make some changes some some changes in the right direction and I uh, just uh, to continue on, along this line, and, and in many ways, many states uh, are making changes, which I would view would be in the wrong direction of, you know, making it outlawing protests in many ways, making it easier to create. And this is just my my view on this is making it easier to create a pretext for law enforcement intervention into a into a peaceful protest. You know, defining peaceful protest as a riot, basically. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the First Amendment right to assemble and redress government, the differences with the government of policies is is sacrosanct. And uh, states around the country, 
several states are trying to ban peaceful protest, which is one of the most important uh, ways the public can communicate their displeasure to the government uh, at large, because without that, you know, we're, we're all prisoners of, uh, of the standard knowledge in so many different ways, and especially with the injustices, uh, racial inequality, and uh, and and environmental uh, racism, there's there's a lot of areas that we need to improve in our society, and and a peaceful protest is one of the ways to call attention to that. So it's just it's just reprehensible that this uh, this peaceful tool of recognizing problems uh, brought to the government by the people is being condemned and and made illegal. It's just horrible, horrible development. Well, certainly, uh, I think we all have to ask the question, you know, and, and try to determine who the provocateurs are, because it seems to me that that seems to be standard practice for every government. Well, legitimate investigations, you know, are, are, are appropriate, I think, to find out who the wrongdoers are. And, and lawbreakers are, should be punished according to the existing laws. We don't need new laws to ban protests when we have laws that we can uh, charge arsonists with or people who are trespassing or, or you know. Uh, the problem, I think, is that we're, we're putting property damage on a level that it can be defended with physical damage and, and harm to persons, which to, which to me, that's, that's not a fair equation. We, people are much more valuable than property, and we need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, yeah, that's that's for sure. Hey, so Joe, are you do you can you talk a little bit about the um, the sort of I guess near or or medium or even long term aftermath of of Kent State? I mean, if you're willing, you know, on your life or, or the lives of some of the other people involved and and uh, wounded. Oh my! Oh yeah. Well, uh, it's a it's a sad sad uh, memory for me today. Not only because of the loss of the four lives, but of the nine of us who were wounded, we've we've lost three mm. uh, of those gentlemen, and most recently, our our kind of our spokesperson and and our leader, Alan Canfora, mm. uh, passed away from non-COVID related illnesses. But he he passed away, and he was brave enough to stay in place in Ohio and, and discuss the issue and, and and be the spokesperson in the press and the media for us for many many years and. Uh, I'm sorely grieved that he's no longer with us, and I don't know exactly exactly what we'll do because he was such an effective spokesperson. He was very reasonable at the same time he was very passionate. And, and, and so we've lost Alan lately, and previous to him, we lost uh, Jim Russell, my good friend, who was also shot on May 4th, uh, wounded with buckshot. And years years before, to we lost to Lyme disease. Robbie Stamps, who was a, another one of the nine of us, and so our our numbers are dwindling. So our voices need to get louder to to require uh, accountability uh, in this instance and other instances of, of law enforcement taking lives needlessly. Um, the person who uh, was wounded most seriously is my good friend Dean. Dean Kaler was uh, had a bullet penetrate uh, his back and sever a spinal cord as he lay on the ground. Uh, 
quite a few hundred feet away, and he was paralyzed for life. And, and he's had health issues as a result ever since then. Although the physical damage that happened to his body has not affected his spirit or his mind. He is truly, truly an example of a Christian person and, uh, and a, a light in my life for how I would like to be because he's very forgiving. He's very spiritual and religious and kind. And, uh, and to me, he's an example of what coming through tragedy should, should lead you to. Uh, some of the other guys uh, have had different kinds of injuries. Dean, Dean was the most seriously injured. Um, the other injuries weren't quite as serious, or they were, of course, life-changing in the trauma that they induced, I'm sure. And we haven't, you know, the other wounded man and myself, we, we, we spend time together infrequently at the commemorations. Uh, there's a spectrum of involvements. A couple of the guys don't come at all. A couple of guys come, you know, all the time, and um, and that's okay. However, people deal with it because it was a, I'm sure, a, a turning point in all of our lives, um, right. and you know, resulted in different responses. Yeah. Uh, so your uh, your friend. Well, I just want to say that I'm going to make a personal comment because we've known each other quite a while and pretty well, Joe, and that is that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like you've you, you described your friend who you thought was the, the the great example and forgiving and and honest and kind and uh, devoted are all always I would describe you um, absolutely uh, Joe and you've made a great mark on well, on, you, on our on our communities right with all your work in in uh, Skepus with uh, Human Dignity Group and with ROP. Um, so I know you've also done some you've done some forums and that sort of thing over the years. And what I'm wondering is, have you seen any any progress? And I know it seems like right now there's everything's going in the in the other direction. But have you seen over the years any progress? Do you think as a result of the lessons learned or lessons available from the from Kent State? I I would I would say yes, I, and I I guess it would be hard for me to describe it as progress. But when it comes to crowd control situations by law enforcement, uh, there are uh, live thirty caliber rifles uh, in present, you know, as a routine anymore. I think uh, that law enforcement officials have have learned to uh treat crowds differently um although they're still abhorrently still beating people and breaking their bones and gassing them and neighborhoods are being poisoned by the gas but uh you know i i think there has been some evolution um and it may have to do with legal things but uh, in the way that uh law enforcement treats crowds um uh, and so that 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 may be, uh, you know, I don't know, like I said, if you'd call that progress, but a transition into a little bit more humane. Um, even non-lethal weapons can kill you and uh, hurt you badly. Uh, but but that's been a change that was necessary, um, you know. And uh, I guess you're right. We are going in the wrong direction. We're banning peaceful assemblies and making them illegal or allowing people to hit people with cars and not be held accountable. That's, that's absurd. Um, so I guess there's been some, some changes that were beneficial, uh, but not enough. Remarkable. I, I have to say it, it leaves me feeling 
slightly in a void. <laughs> Things haven't really changed that much. Yeah, it's it's upsetting. I agree. Um, you know, especially I mean the other the other the pandemic and the other problems that we're faced with now, along with the continued you know disparity in economic opportunities, disparity in law enforcement activity and drug uh, law enforcement, and uh, we we have a lot of we have a lot of work to do. Um, but I think that people, some people, are waking up and. And doing the work, as you know, you're connected with some human dignity groups and, and social justice causes yourself. And and uh, there's there's some of us who who are continuing to do this work and make the effort to, to make our, our country a better, uh, more humane and kinder place. Yeah, uh, I, it, we are. I hope there's enough of us and I hope uh, I hope it. it you know, our side uh, prevails, so to speak. I, I sort of don't like to see it as a contest. I wish it wasn't a contest, but it, and there's ways in which it feels like that now. Uh, so, Joe, we're uh, – we, yeah, I know. it's um, We are close to out of time here. Is there anything else that, that you want to add um, before we before we close down? Well, you know, like you talked about, I, I have participated in some classroom presentations, and what I ask the students there is, you know, will you, when you are running the world, which the future belongs to the young, and I just want to ask them and plead with them to please allow for peaceful demonstrations, to, to please try and understand the frustration and and what drives people to getting in the streets in the first place that that's a desperate that's a desperate uh attempt at uh, getting your word getting your voice heard and i would ask the young people to consider that as they come into a position to be in charge of our country and the world um you are the hope for change and i'm very hopeful because the young people that i know are an improvement over the old people that I know. No, no <laughs> offense to my old friends. No offense to my old friends. <laughs> well, we're we're three old guys on this on these mics and this phone, so and we wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, there's sorry, no, sorry to you, old timers and, and myself. No, right. I mean, but it's so true. It really is. It really, really is true. Um, so uh, yeah, um, I think uh, there was a guy who's a, kind of a fairly smart guy who said that those who make peaceful Revolution impossible, make violent revolution inevitable. Um, nah. and <laughs> pretty smart guy that said that. Um, so uh, thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate all your time. Uh, you just, you know, I, I love you, hearing please. this story. And uh, one of these days we'll see each other. It'd be nice to have a, an in-person ROP caucus one of these days again. I'm looking forward to the time when we can get together. Yeah, yeah, me too. All right, Joe, thank you so much. Joe Lewis of uh, Scapoose and uh, Rural Organizing Project, um, and joining KPV today. So thanks, Joe. Thank you, Bruce. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and our program schedule, please visit kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org dot o r g